The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. Our reading for this morning will be Judges 1 and verse 21 through chapter 2 and verse 5. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. The man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or Akzib or Helba or Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. And brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that through your word you would open our eyes to see clearly who we are, 
who you are, who you are making us. God, I pray that we would this morning stare into the darkness of judges and behold the light of the gospel. And I pray that in doing so, you would make our faith firmer in a dark world. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. So, we get to finish up Judges 1 today and enter into Judges 2. And I know after the reading, you're excited. Later this evening, I'm actually going to be headed out of town. I'm going to board a plane and I'm going to head to Wake Forest, North Carolina for a conference. And I don't really get nervous uh, when I fly uh, because I kind of feel like I've made this contractual agreement with the airline when I buy my ticket. Like, I promise to abide by their rules. And the whole, the whole like suitcase measurements and weight thing, the standing in line for the security check, taking off the ch- whatever I got to do, I'm going to do your rules. I will keep my end of the deal as long as you keep yours, which is you have promised to get me to where I'm going. The book of Judges begins with a similar kind of pact, but one that's much, much stronger than any contract. Judges begins with a people who've made a covenant, and not with something as silly as an airline but with Almighty God. Covenant, biblical word, you hear it a lot, what does it mean? A covenant is like a contract in that it does involve like an official legal agreement and there are legal consequences for breaking it. But a covenant is more than a contract because it also has this deeply relational aspect to it. Most of the time, a covenant's promises are rooted in love and are to be carried out in faithfulness. The easiest example of a covenant is marriage. There is a contractual agreement in marriage, but it is a heck of a lot more than a contract. God made marriage in order to illustrate what his relationship with us is like. It is a covenant relationship. We have a covenant-making God. His promises are not merely contractual, they're covenantal. They're rooted in love and carried out in faithfulness. The Hebrew word that best describes all this is chesed. You gotta get the phlegm going in the back of the throat. Chesed. It, it the best translation I give you, it's often translated as loving kindness. The best translation I could give you is something like covenantal love. Covenantal, loving, faithfulness. And right here at the beginning of Judges, we're seeing a people that God has made a covenant with. He's made a covenant with the people of Israel. And we can kind of compare that covenant to my contract that I have today with Delta. I promise Delta, I'm going to abide by your rules. You've promised to get me where I'm going. Well, the people had promised to live their lives in accordance with God's command. And he had promised to take them to a specific place, a land, to the land of Canaan. And if you remember, last week, as we walked through most, through the first 20 verses of Judges 1, it seemed like things were going well as the people were settling into the land of Canaan. But near the conclusion, in fact, in verse 19, we began to feel some turbulence. Remember that? Not only do we begin to feel turbulence by the time we got to chapter 1 and verse 19, but we also took a peek at the conclusion, and we saw that at the conclusion of this book, we are going to find ourselves staring at the wreckage that is the people of God. Finding ourselves staring at this horrendous, horrific crash 
asking what went wrong. That's the same question that gets asked any time a plane actually goes down, right? What, what, what went wrong? In order to figure out what went wrong, there's, there's the infamous search for the, the black box. Everybody know what this is? Black, I actually just learned that uh, planes normally have two black boxes, one in the front and one in the back, uh, and they're normally not black. Huh, they're usually orange, so you can find them. Who knew? Anyway, that's beside the point. It's basically a data recorder that logs flight information so that if a plane goes down and you get a hold of this thing, you can help answer the question, what happened, what went wrong? The passage in front of us today is like the book of Judges', Judges black box. It, it helps us understand how we get from this covenantal people of God in the beginning to the crash and the wreckage that we see at the end. Shades, this is what we need to see this morning. And we need to see it because we too are a people in covenant with God Almighty. We too are being led to a promised land, the land of new creation. I don't know about you, but I don't care to crash along the way. Do what the Apostle Paul calls making shipwreck of your faith. So we need to see what caused this covenant people to crash. We need to see the consequences. For, for I believe that when we see these things, seeing them is what will actually ultimately keep us from crashing our faith. So let's crack into Judge's black box with you come on and crack into Judges' black box with me. Judges chapter 1 and verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Last week, I told you that Judges starts with two introductions. And at this point right here, Judges 1, 21, we're actually hitting the halfway point of introduction number one. Not even going to get to introduction number two until the next time we're together. But right here, we are at the halfway point of the first introduction, and it's a turning point. Okay, if you recall from last week, I already said this, in Judges 1, the people are they're trying to finish driving out the Canaanites from the land that God promised to give them. And in verse 1 to verse 21, what we see is how that campaign goes in the southern part of the nation of Israel. And for the most part, it goes pretty good. I mean, last week we saw Judah doing a good job, finishing driving out the Canaanites, settling the land. We hit that little bit of turbulence in verse 19. You remember exactly what it was. Judah couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the plain because the people of the plain had iron chariots. They see these iron chariots and Judah's faith fails. They freak out. And here in verse 21, we see that little bit of turbulence start turning into a tailspin. Verse 21, look at it again. We read about Benjamin. Benjamin is the other tribe in the south. Benjamin doesn't get any mentions of any successes like Judah did. It's nothing but failure. They failed to drive out the Jebusites. Specifically, the text says they did not drive them out. In other words, they could have. They trusted in God, trusted in his strength, trusted in his promises. They could have, but they chose not to. And we're told that that choice has devastating results. 
Look at it again. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That may not sound like a big deal on the surface, but we are being set up right here. We're being set up to see that that is a bigger deal than we can even begin to imagine. This this note of defeat, this is how the southern campaign ends, but it is setting the tone for how the entire northern campaign will go. Just take a cursory glance with me. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. Verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshemesh. And this campaign concludes in verse 34, not with the tribe of Dan failing to drive out the inhabitants of that land. No, with the inhabitants of the land driving out the tribe of Dan. Look at it. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. I mean, we've gone from a little bit of turbulence in verse 19 to a complete and utter tailspin. This flight into the promised land is heading for crashing and burning. And we, and we were left asking, what, what, what happened? Where's the black box to show us why this covenant people crashed? Well, like I told you, every plane actually has two black boxes, and so do we right here in this passage, one in the front and one in the back. You may have noticed that I skipped over verses 22 to 26. That's our black box in the front of the plane. And we've yet to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. That's our black box in the back. And together, they help us see what happened to cause this crash and they help us to see its consequences. So, look with me. Black box in the front of the plane, verse 22. We've just finished up in verse 21, the report on how things went in the south. And now that we're turning our attention to the north, it begins with a narrative. A, a narrative that is going to show us why. Why the entire northern campaign is going to fail. Look at verse 22. The house of Joseph... Summary way of talking about the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. House of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. I should tell you that's the Israelite name for this place. Because now we get a parenthetical note. Now the name of that city was formerly Luz. That's the Canaanite name. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. He showed them the way into the city. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. This story, like all the plot points that we hit, if you're familiar with your Bible, they should remind you of another story. I mean, if you're familiar with the story of the conquest, they should take you back to the very beginning of it. Does this story ring any bells? Anybody? Bueller? Should take you back to Joshua 2. Through, <laughs> Kenyon was going to say chapter 3. Well, it includes chapter 3, Kenyon. Should take you back to Joshua chapter 2 through Joshua chapter 6 to the very first battle that the people fight when they come into the promised land, the battle of Jericho. Remember, they send spies into Jericho, and they are helped by one of the native Canaanites 
a lady named Rahab. We, we are meant to hear echoes of that story right here. Again, we see spies scouting out a Canaanite city. Again, they're helped by one of the city's inhabitants. Again, as a result, they have success. Again, they spare the person that helped them. All of this is meant to make us think back and compare this story with the one about Rahab. And not just compare, contrast. That's where the point lies. Because it's not the similarities that make this story interesting. It's the differences. You go back and you read the account of Rahab. Rahab offered to help. Here, this man, this Canaanite, he is sought out. Rahab was promised salvation that she and her family would be spared in response to her faith. She expressed faith in God, embraced Yahweh as God over all. This man never expresses any kind of faith. After everything's said and done, Rahab becomes a part of Israel, marries in, will end up in the line of Jesus Christ. This man remains a Canaanite for the rest of his life. We're we're meant to see the story of Rahab as an expression of faith. But the story of Bethel is a failure of faith. Do you see that? The house of Joseph right here, as they get started on this northern campaign, they have every reason to put their faith in God. Every reason. They they go up to Bethel. Do you remember the history of that place? Bethel? This is where the house of Joseph, their ancestor, Jacob, this is where he lay down on the ground, used a stone for a pillow, and had a very famous dream about a ladder, a, st- a temple stairway between heaven and earth. And while he's having that dream, God promises to give him and his descendants the very place on which he sleeps. And so when he awakes, he names the place Bethel, house of God. Get, get this. The Israelites are literally standing in the place that God promised to give to them. They're standing in the spot that should stir up their faith in God's covenant. Not only that, but verse 22 reassures them that the Lord is with them. Look at that again. The Lord. You see Lord there is in all caps in your Bible? That's your translator's way of telling you the Hebrew behind that word. And the Hebrew is Yahweh, God's covenant name the name by which he revealed himself to Israel and bound himself to them as his people and they, and he would be their God. He is giving them every reason to move forward in faith. This is the place I promised to give you. I am the God who promised to give it to you and I am with you. But do you see how their faith fails? Like they don't trust in God's promises. They don't trust in his presence. They don't trust in his covenant. They make their own. Look, Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. When they grab this guy, this Canaanite that's coming out of the city, listen to what they say. Please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. You got to hear that in Hebrew. And that's when it'll slap you in the face. It literally says, please show us the way into the city and we will do chesed with you. 
chesed, covenant, love, covenant, faithfulness. They are making a covenant with a Canaanite. This is what goes wrong. This, this is what goes wrong. They turn away from the covenant they have with God to do exactly what he told them not to in Deuteronomy 7, make a covenant with the Canaanites. Last week, if you remember, last week we talked about how Judges, as a, as a book, as a whole, Judges reveals God's people spiraling down into darkness. That's the journey, the trajectory of the whole book. If you think we're starting off at a low point, you ain't seen nothing yet. And last week, we talked about how that spiral downward begins. It begins with a failure of faith. Remember, that's what happened with the turbulence we saw in verse 19. Judah sees these iron chariots that the people of the plains have, and they freak out, and their faith in God and his strength to conquer as he promised fails. This is where God's people, spiraling down into darkness, begins, shades, when we look and we see that the world has iron chariots. Name your iron chariot. When we see the world and its wealth, its political power, when we see things that are wrong in the world, when we see death, we see hurricanes, when we feel the darkness of the world in in personal ways, touch our lives, in disease, in, in depression. Like, name your iron chariot. When everything around us, the darkness around us, looks like it has all the weapons and it is thus unconquerable, and our faith in God and his promise to conquer in the end begins to fail, we have begun to spiral downwards. But now, now we see, okay, yes, Spiral downward into darkness, it begins with a failure of faith, but it really descends when that faith is placed in something or someone else. Do you, do you see the difference? The spiral downward into darkness begins with a failure of faith, a failure to trust in God. But when we really lock in to descending down into the darkness. It's not just when we fail to trust God, but we take that faith that should properly be placed in him and we turn it and we place it in something else. That's, that's what's going on right here. Israel is not just failing to put their faith in God. They are proactively putting their faith in a Canaanite. They have compromised the covenant. Turn from a covenant with God to a covenant with a king. They've compromised the covenant. That's what went wrong. And the consequence is they don't conquer. Oh, sure. It, it may look like they conquered. And they go in, they put Bethel to the sword. It looks like they won. But do you remember how this story purposefully ends? Look again at verse 26. And the man, that one they made the covenant with, he went to the land of the Hittites and he built a city and he called its name Luz. Luz 2.0. That's its name to this day. It's the author's way of saying Luz wasn't really defeated. It just relocated. So the situation you're in right now is God's people actually live side by side with the Canaanites and it is a ticking time bomb. It is only a matter of time before you can no longer tell them apart. 
The covenant has been compromised. And this is what we continue to see again and again throughout the rest of the northern campaign. We are going to see the people of God compromise their covenant in every way imaginable. I will just show you three quickly. First, the covenant is compromised for what's practical. It's compromised for what's practical. Look at the very next verse, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshion and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. You stinking Canaanites! They're so persistent! You eventually kind of get to the point, do we really have to drive them all out? I mean, we've driven most of them out. Let's be practical. Will it really be that bad to leave some living in the land? And God's people compromise God's covenant for what's practical. Second, the covenant is compromised for what's profitable. The covenant's compromised for what's profitable. Look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong... They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So even when Israel, what we're being shown right here is that even when Israel gets the upper hand, they still don't. They still don't obey God's command to drive out the Canaanites. No, they come up with a more profitable solution. Let's put them to forced labor. That's to our economic advantage. Surely God will be pleased with our shrewdness as we're helping out, you know, his kingdom. God's people compromise God's covenant for what's profitable. Third, the covenant is compromised for what is pleasurable. The covenant's compromised for what is pleasurable. Look down to verse 31. Asher, which means happy, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko and other places. I'm not reading the list again. Verse 32. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Did you see the subtle change? Like read through this entire northern campaign. And up to this point, what you will read is the Canaanites. The ones that are left over, they lived in the land among God's people. But it flips right here. Now, and moving forward, we read, God's people live among the Canaanites. In other words, we're not talking about just a few leftover Canaanites here. They're still the dominant population in the land. This, this isn't about like it being impractical to drive out a few remaining Canaanites. No, this is more about it being way more pleasurable just to settle down in the midst of the Canaanites. I know that's what's going on here. Because by the time we get to chapter 2 and verse 11 in a couple of weeks, we will see God's people wallowing in all of the pleasures that Canaanite culture has to offer. Shades. Shades, do you see how the covenant has been compromised for what's practical, what's profitable, what's pleasurable. The Israelites have not just failed to put their faith in God. They are beginning to place it somewhere else, in the Canaanites and in their gods. This, this is what causes faith 
to crash. And Shades, we've got to ask, is the same true of us? Like God has called us, his church, to be his covenant people who love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. But how practical is that? We've tried. Can't God be satisfied with just like part of my heart? Because I'll be honest, giving him all of it doesn't seem to be that profitable anyway. I've tried following Jesus with everything that is in me. I have given him all of me, but he has not given me what I have wanted. The things I've asked for, things like a spouse, children, different job, any job, health. If I'm being honest, this covenant doesn't seem all that profitable. Perhaps I'll just pursue one with someone else. I bet that will be way more pleasurable. Because again, if I'm honest, following God seems to come with a heck of a lot of pain. Canaanite culture looks pretty good on the surface. As we get into this, people, Canaanite culture, with its fertility cults and worship, it was saturated with sex. It, it, It was saturated with promises of power. It looked a heck of a lot more pleasurable. Kind of like our sex-saturated culture with its never-ending invitations to indulgence. Money, sex, power, all of these things are constantly held out to us with the promise of pleasure in our very hedonistic, materialistic culture of immediacy. All of these temptation shades, all of these temptations to compromise. I think it's also important that we see these don't just come at us as individuals. All these temptations to compromise, they come at us as a church as well. I mean, can we, Shades Valley Community Church, really keep holding on to Christian orthodoxy and expect to survive in the 21st century? Don't we need to compromise somewhere, capitulate to the culture? That's what every church growth book and a lot of pastors tell me. Or we won't make it. It's just holding on to Christian orthodoxy. That just doesn't seem practical. It's definitely not profitable or pleasurable. In my personal experience, holding on to orthodoxy will get you mocked misunderstood, maligned, and I'm sure a host of other M-words. Why why not fight fire with fire? That sounds practical. Why not pick up the weapons of the world, money, money, influence, political power. It seems like using those things to get my point across in this world would be way more profitable anyway. And if I use it all with vitriol and hate just like the world, then I guarantee it's going to be a heck of a lot more pleasurable. But shades, shades, do not be conceived. All of that, all of that that I just laid out, do not be deceived 
into compromising the covenant for what seems for your relationship with Christ. Do not be deceived into compromising your covenant with Christ for what seems practical, profitable, and pleasurable. Don't compromise your faith by placing it in someone or something else that will only ultimately cause it to crash and burn. That's precisely what we see when we open up black box number two. Look at it with me. Judges chapter two, verses one through five. This is our second black box. It's the one in the back of the plane. And here we see the consequences of compromising the covenant. Read it with me. Verse one. Now the angel of the Lord, angel, don't get tied up on the word angel right there. We tend to associate that with a very specific kind of being. The word can simply mean messenger. Now the angel, messenger of the Lord, went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So right after the complete failure of the northern campaign, angel of the Lord strolls onto the scene. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, that's a unique name or title applied to a very unique being, and he is seen as Yahweh's chief messenger. As a matter of fact, he speaks directly as if he is Yahweh. Some scholars believe he is Yahweh. I happen to agree. I think that when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you are seeing what we would call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I think this is Jesus. And I think that probably most specifically because just go read Jude 5. Jude in verse 5 says that Jesus brought the people up out of the land of Egypt. What's the first thing the angel, the messenger of the Lord says? I brought you up from the land of Egypt. This messenger comes with the full weight and authority of Yahweh. And we're told specifically where he comes from. This is interesting. He comes from Gilgal to Bochim. Bochim is a nickname for Bethel. Okay, so that story we got at the beginning of the northern campaign where the people failed, made this come. Yeah, that's the place we're talking about. He comes from Gilgal, down in the south, up to Bethel, Bochim. Why? Why doesn't a heavenly messenger come from heaven? Why all this geography? It's because the geography carries a message. Throughout chapter 1, you will see this phrase recurring, so-and-so went up, so-and-so went up. And just look at verse 4, Judah went up to war. Verse 22, today we read, Benjamin went up to war. Everybody is going up, and they're going up from the same place. They're going up from Gilgal. Gilgal, if you read through the book of Joshua, Gilgal is the very first place that Israel made camp when they came into the promised land. And it kind of became like their base of operations. It's where they would set out from when they would go to, to war. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to Joshua chapter 5, you will read that the angel of the Lord showed up there at Gilgal. He showed up as the commander of the armies of the Lord. Right as the conquest begins, here is the angel of the Lord with God's people in Gilgal. There in Gilgal, they renew their covenant with God. There in Gilgal, they set out to keep the covenant. And now that the fighting is done, Yahweh himself, it's his turn to go up from Gilgal, to go through the land and to inspect and see just how the people have kept the covenant. And he meets them in the place 
where he made the covenant with their ancestor Jacob, the place that's called his house, Bethel, house of God, the place where they broke this covenant. All, all of this geography is carrying this weighty message of God saying, I made this covenant with you, I commissioned you to keep this covenant, and I have seen you crash it, get ready for the consequences. What is this that you have done? Consequences coming in verse three. Look at it with me. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. Essentially, God says, here are the consequences. I'm gonna give you what you clearly want. The way you fought this, that you want to mix with the Canaanites and that's exactly what's gonna happen but you will come to see that it is not practical, profitable, or pleasurable. No, he says this will actually make you miserable. Like a thorn in your side, festering wound of misery. Their gods are going to ensnare you, trap you, blind you, enslave you, rob you. Shades, that's what idols do. Shades, don't be deceived by all of the pleasures that the idols of this world promise you. That's the bait. Listen to Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. And once you're caught in it, you see that it's empty. Idols are empty, and they will ultimately make you miserable. All the money Sex and power in the world will be nothing more than a festering thorn in your side that can never provide what it promised. Don't compromise your covenant with God to make a covenant with them. That will cause your faith to crash and you will be left weeping in the end. Is that not what we see happen to Israel in verse 4? As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. I don't think this is real repentance. Scholars argue about it. If it is real repentance, then it's short-lived I mean, we'll see that before this chapter is over. I think these tears are for themselves. They realize that they've been caught in a trap. And their tears are for their own misery. I mean, they even changed the name of the place to make it about them. They don't call it Bethel, house of the Lord. They call it Bochim, which literally means weeping. We will see them weep here again in Judges chapter 20 and verse 26. Because right here in chapter 2, this is not a moment of change. By the end of the book, they're going to be in the same place doing the same thing. This is not a moment of change. It's a moment in which we are seeing the consequences of Israel compromising the covenant. I mean, what a dark and depressing end to this first introduction. At least it would be were it not for one more consequence we need to see. Back up with me to chapter 2 and verse 1 and look at it closely with me. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. 
Remember, that's him reminding us of the covenant he made, the covenant the people broke. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never, I, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? I like the way that Tim Keller puts this. He says that God is basically saying, you've put me in an impossible situation. Look at what you've done, Israel. Let me read you the full Tim Keller quote. He says, you, this is God saying, you've put me in an impossible situation. I've sworn to bless you as my beloved people, and I've sworn not to bless you as a disobedient people. How am I supposed to solve this dilemma? What is this you have done? Do you feel the tension of the situation that God is in? He has promised to keep his covenant in love. I will never, never break my covenant with you. But in his righteousness, he will also hold covenant breakers accountable. So what's going to win? God's love or his righteousness? Judges is going to make us feel this tension again and again and again. And in doing so, it will point to us towards God's ultimate response to our sin, grace. This is the second consequence we need to see. This is the ultimate consequence we need to see when we have compromised our end of the covenant we need to see the consequence that god still keeps his how like how can can such grace god keeping his end of the covenant even when we compromise ours how can such grace be and god remain righteous the only answer shades is the gospel God who traveled from Gilgal to Bochim to remind us that he is the covenant keeper, that same God would travel from glory to Bethlehem to keep our side of the covenant, not just his. Jesus Christ, God, would take on flesh and keep the covenant everywhere we compromised it. He would take on all of our covenant breaking with all of its consequences, Take all of that upon himself so that he might give to us his covenant keeping. Shades, the cross is the answer to the dilemma of judges. The cross is where God righteously deals with sin and simultaneously, graciously pours out love towards sinners through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a savior. And judges is shining a light on. Judges takes us into the darkness so that we may see ever brighter the bright light of the ultimate judge, the ultimate savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see him? 
as a consequence of our sin and compromise? Do you see more clearly his grace? Grace that is greater than all our compromise. Grace that is greater than all our sins. Shades, you may have experienced failure of faith. You may find yourself right now having compromised your covenant with Christ, but see his faithful covenant-keeping anyway, and let that call you back to a firmer faith than the one you had that failed in the first place. This, seeing this, our covenant-keeping Christ, this is what ultimately keeps us from crashing our faith. When we see Christ's covenant-keeping faithfulness, even in the face of our compromise, When we see it, it beckons us. It calls us back to him. And not to Bochim, to a place of weeping, but to Bethel. He's calling us back to his very house where he welcomes us as sons and daughters. You are being called today, Shades, away from compromising your faith by making covenants with other things or other people in this world. You are being called away from compromising your faith to, to, you are being called away from that and all of its consequences, back to Christ, to Jesus, who has kept both sides of the covenant through the cross, and the consequence of that is grace. Shades, Judges is asking us, daring us, what is this you have done? It is daring us to reflect on where we will place our faith. on whose covenant we will trust, on whose promises we will believe. And it is calling us away from compromise and calling us to faith in Christ. Do you hear that call? I would plead with you, heed it. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful. Grateful that your word in its clarity warns us warns us of how easily it of how easy the world can deceive us of how quickly we can doubt your goodness and your promises in light of the darkness of this world of how quickly we can cling to the promises of this world father i pray i pray The story of Israel, the story of Judges helps us to back up and stare into the darkness and see the one and only true light, the light of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that no matter what iron chariots we face in this life, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter how much it looks like you and your word aren't winning, that you will not conquer as you've promised, I pray pray that we would be of people who would keep our faith firmly rooted in Christ because we see him firmly, faithfully keeping the covenant on the cross. Lord, make us that people, your people, for the glory of Jesus. We pray these things in his name, by the power of your spirit.